You can paint a picture which, which puts people in despair, or you can, or, or, without inventing anything, you can find those episodes and then those moments in history which suggest to you that something else is possible, even if that something else has not yet taken place on a big enough scale, you know. That's Howard Zinn, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Howard Zinn on a people's history of the United States, part one of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn centenary. You want to read a real history book? Matt Damon asks Robin Williams in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. That book will knock you on your ass. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has sold more than two million copies, and it keeps on selling. His close friend, Noam Chomsky, said, the book changed the consciousness of a generation. Zinn's history from below was to foreground, as he said, the countless small actions of unknown people. It was a sharp departure from the traditional focus on great men presidents, generals, leaders, etc. His unorthodox approach presented the past stripped of its myths and propaganda. Howard Zinn, professor emeritus at Boston University, was perhaps this country's premier radical historian. He was born in Brooklyn in 1922. His parents, poor immigrants, were constantly moving to stay, as he once told me, one step ahead of the landlord. After high school, he went to work in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. During World War II, he saw combat duty as an Air Force bombardier. After the war, he went to Columbia University on the GI Bill. He was an active figure in the civil rights movement. He was among the first to oppose U.S. aggression in Indochina. A principal opponent of imperialism and militarism, he was an advocate of nonviolent civil disobedience. He spoke and marched against the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Always ready to lend a hand, he believed in and practiced solidarity. Witty, erudite, generous, and loved by many the world over, Howard Zinn, friend and teacher, passed away in 2010. This archival program was recorded at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And now, Howard Zinn. I came across a book recently called The Art and Politics of College Teaching. Any of you ever hear of it? No. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. It's a kind of uh, Machiavellian guide to people who want to teach in college. It has sort of organized in the form of, of concerns. And uh, concern number nine, I skipped the first eight for your benefit. Can, can, can I involve myself in causes, crusades, and political activism as a professor? Answer. The institution of higher education may not look kindly upon such activities. <laughs> Be wary of introducing your political conclusions or social thought into classroom situations. 
be on guard not to take sides if it is possible to avoid it at all. Play dumb. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Until you get your PhD, the advice is play smart. And then after you get your PhD, play dumb. Uh, be somewhat submissive to the senior faculty. <laughs> the only thing I, about that I didn't understand was the word somewhat. <laughs> I thought that took courage. <laughs> yeah. If I had had that book available to me when I started my teaching career, I mean, who knows what I might have become? A dean, maybe. Mm. Um, anyway, I've always been interested in teaching uh, as, a, as a profession and the whole idea of professionalism, which ties in with Machiavelli, that is the idea of, of just doing well whatever it is somebody tells you to do without asking why or what. And I saw a review not long ago of the autobiography of Leni Riefenstahl, you know, the, the... I started to call her the Nazi filmmaker, but then I realized she wouldn't like it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so let's put it this way. She was a filmmaker who worked for the Nazis. Uh, and in this review, the, the, the reviewer in, in the New York Times talked about her, her involvement with, with Hitler. I, I, when I say involvement with Hitler, I don't mean it in the sense of you know, People magazine. Or, uh, involved, met Hitler a few times, had lunch with Goebbels, uh, if you can imagine having lunch with Goebbels. <laughs> and then... But, you know, she is in the world of film. Her, her technique is admired enormously. And, and the, the reviewer ends up by saying something like, she may have compromised her morality, but her artistic integrity, never. <laughs> and then I remember the, uh, when the Mumia Abu Jamal was facing execution. I don't know how many of you have heard of the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, but when the campaign was on for Mumia Abu-Jamal, I remember at the very time, just before the, his scheduled date of execution, and when there's a campaign going on around the country, indeed around the world, uh, to, to stop his execution, there was a meeting. It so happened at, at that very time in Philadelphia, which is the, the, the site of, of, all of all of that, of, of Jamal and move and the Pennsylvania governor coming to office uh, promising to carry through all of the executions uh, that were planned in the state of Pennsylvania. And, and just at that time, the Association of Black Journalists met in Phil Philadelphia and debated the question of whether they should call for a new trial for Mumia Abu-Jamal, which is, which is what the campaign was for. The, uh, 
E.L. Doctorow, the novelist, wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times saying, as, as many people did, we don't really know the facts of this case. It's hard to, hard to know. We have conflicting evidence. Uh, who can say for sure whether Mumia Abu Jamal uh, killed this uh, policeman or not? Uh, but judging from the, the way the trial was conducted, from the way the witnesses were brought forth, from the prejudice of the judge who was proud of having sentenced more people to death than any other judge. He deserves a, a new trial. And this is what people were asking for, and this is what the Association of Black Journalists was debating. They finally decided not to call for a new trial, but to make some statement short of that. And one of the grounds for not declaring themselves boldly in favor of a new trial was that they felt it was not their job as journalists to do that. But our job is to advance ourselves professionally and to do everything we can do to, to advance the profession, and somehow this doesn't fit in. Kind of think of it, I just thought of another example, <laughs> and which in my own profession, sometimes I, I consider myself a member of the historical profession for speech purposes. <laughs> During the Vietnam War, there was a business meeting of the American Historical Association. You know, you know these annual scholarly meetings. Some of you may be really lucky and get to go to some of them. And right in the midst of the Vietnam War, at all of these scholarly meetings, you know, all these papers are presented. There's always a business meeting where, which is attended. You know, the, the the whole thing is attended by thousands of people come from all over the country for that one annual meeting, and then there's a business meeting which is usually attended by 32 people, because can you imagine how exciting would be the business of the American Historical Association? But this time at this meeting, the place was jammed because everybody had heard that there was going to be a resolution introduced at the business meeting calling for the American Historical Association to denounce American policy in Vietnam and to call for the withdrawal of American forces from Vietnam. And so everybody came. And we introduced the resolution. In fact, I confess that I introduced the resolution. <laughs> Wearing dark glasses. <laughs> we had a, a lively debate on it, as lively a debate as you can have at the American Historical Association. And the resolution was defeated. And the main ground for its defeat was that it really wasn't relevant to the work of historians. Immediately after my resolution, or our resolution, the resolution of what was called the Radical History Caucus, I don't know why I've always been somehow part of something called the Radical History Caucus, or, but after that was defeated, somebody else got up and proposed another resolution which said exactly what my resolution had said, except that it added the words, because the money that's going for the war could otherwise be used to advance the profession of history. <laughs> that resolution passed overwhelmingly. So I'm glad you're all going to be professionals. And the problem is, how to work in a field without becoming a professional in, in that sense of the term, in that narrow, warped, 
anti-human sense of the term. So when I, when I became a historian, that when I entered what I dis soon discovered was a profession, when I became a historian, I already knew that I was not going to be neutral. I already understood for myself that in teaching history or writing history, my point of view was going to be there. I was not going to be a, what I call a disinterested historian. I had interest. I was not going to be an objective historian because I, I didn't really believe objectivity was possible, nor was it desirable. Unless objectivity meant telling the truth as you saw it, not lying, not distorting, uh, not omitting information, and not omitting arguments uh, because they don't conform to some idea that you have. But if objectivity meant not taking a stand, if objectivity meant uh, presenting data without caring about the social effect of the kind of data you present, and that, I didn't want that kind of objectivity. History was interesting to me, but I wasn't going into history because it was interesting. Uh, or to put it another way, what was interesting about history is that it represented interests, different kinds of interests. I, I was very much aware of that. And I, I was aware as soon as I began to study history that you couldn't really be objective. You couldn't really just recapture the past as it was, a phrase that was used in a, starting in the, in the 19th century uh, when history, history became a, a profession uh, in, in an important sense, reproduce the past as it was, and an idea which is still heard today. I remember reading not long ago an article in the Times Literary Supplement I like people to think that I'm a regular reader of the Times Literary <laughs> Supplement. Actually, I just stumbled on this issue of the Times Literary Supplement. And, and there was an article by Gertrude Himmelfarb. I also like to drop her name once in a while. But Gertrude Himmelfarb is, is some of you may know, but she's a historian, a very well-established historian, and, and I think it's fair to say a conservative historian. And she, she argued in that article for trying to reproduce the past and get as close to it as possible, argued against what she called postmodernism in history and for her postmodernism meant uh, not accepting truth, thinking that there's no such thing as established truth. And she gave as an example of, of how important it was just to find out as much as you can about any era, how one of her students came to her very excited about a historical discovery, and that was that Andrew Jackson's first message to Congress was written by George Bancroft. You don't seem excited by that idea. <laughs> But my, my point is that something like that, you see, that, that Andrew Jackson's first message of Congress written by George Bancroft, because it's a, nobody had found it out before. If somebody hasn't found out anything before and you can bring a new fact to life, this is a very important thing very often, like when you're working on a doctoral dissertation, 
you work in a field that nobody has ever worked at, no matter how unimportant the field is, you see. Uh, and history is an infinite number of events, an infinite number of facts. Inevitably, you must select from that number of facts those things which you are going to present, if you're going to write, if you're going to teach. Uh, what is going to go into this book, or what is going to go into your lecture, into your classroom? There's no way of avoiding the process of selection. And once you make that selection, that selection is based on your point of view, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you even know it or not. This is a way in, in, in which you, you can reproduce the point of view that has been dominant in your culture without understanding that you are reproducing the dominant point of view. And so you make a selection according to that point of view. You make a selection according to what you think is important. And different people think different things are important. And she thought that finding out about Andrew Jackson's the first message to Congress who wrote it was important. Now, I say this because there's this huge emphasis in, and you know how much discussion there is now about history and arguments about history, arguments about history standards, national standards for history. There's, that whole debate has gone on about the, the standards drawn up in California, uh, which led to a Senate resolution. You know, the Senate is very interested in history. And culture and art and things like that. Uh, and so the Senate passed a, re a resolution overwhelmingly, you know, uh, denouncing these history standards and calling for a history in which uh, the United States would not be denigrated and so on. So there's all this controversy about history. And much of the, co much of the controversy sort of ends up with talking about how it is important to know facts well, that's what tests are based on. Uh, standardized tests are based on facts. I remember a few years ago, the New York Times did a survey of high school students to see how much history they knew. They do this, you know, every few years. They, they do a survey of young people to, to prove how dumb they are. <laughs> and to prove how smart are the givers of the tests. And so they gave this test to high school seniors and corroborated what they thought, that young people don't know anything about history. They asked questions like, who was the president during the War of 1812? Uh, who was the president during the Mexican War? Please, I can see you thinking already. <laughs> We're in a great quiz, quiz culture, and all you have to do is drop something. I, that, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. But or, a question like, what came first, the Homestead Act or the Civil Service Act? Well, you recognize questions like that because they're the questions that appear on tests which enable you to get into graduate school. You can go very far if you know enough of those answers. You will be Phi Beta Kappa you will become an advisor to the President of the United States. Do you remember the, the book, The Best and the Brightest, which was precisely about that point, that the people surrounding the presidents who made the war in Vietnam were the, were the brightest people. They were the people who got the highest scores. 
They were Phi Beta Kappa, and they were the architects of the war in Vietnam. The New York Times decided it was important. I mean, they could have selected all sorts of questions, but they decided it was important who was president during the Mexican War. The Times could have asked an important question about the Mexican War. They could have asked, how did the Mexican War start? Ah. Then they might discover, anybody looking at how the Mexican War started, Mexican War, 1846 to 1848. <laughs> America goes to war against Mexico, ends up with 40% of Mexico's land. A little war, cleanly fought. Starts with an incident. One of those incidents which start wars, uh, incidents which have a certain amount of deceit attached to them, in which an attack is fabricated uh, or exaggerated or distorted, and suddenly there's a cause for war. And so there was this disputed territory between. Texas and Mexico, the area between the Rio Grande River and the Nueces River, and Mexico claimed it for theirs, the United States claimed it for theirs, uh, a clash between the two troops, and immediately, uh, that's, that's it, that's the end, that's enough. Uh, President Polk goes to the, uh, and uh, announces to the nation, American blood has been said, has been, has been shed on American soil. Well, a little bit of an exaggeration. I wasn't sure whether it was Mexican soil or American soil. But American blood has been shed upon American soil. The nation is at war. Of course, the decision to find a way to make war with Mexico had been made before that incident. Just as the decision to go to war in Southeast Asia was made before the Gulf of Tonkin incident. But somebody looking into that might then have proceeded to examine our other wars and to examine how these wars start. They might have looked into the war again in the Philippines at, uh, at the turn of the century and, and t taken a look at a, at a fabricated incident in, at the beginning of the war in the Philippines, which then enables the United States to make war in the Philippines against the Filipinos, who seem to want to run their own, their own country. Uh, but uh, they really aren't a civilized people. And so, you know, I remember President McKinley said, we must Christianize them and civilize them. Uh, Filipinos, he said he got that message from God. Uh, Filipinos apparently did not get the same message. Uh, or, and they fought back, and there ensued a very bitter, bloody war, which, as I remember when I went to school, occupied a very small part uh, of, of the history book, whereas the Spanish-American War, the Short War, uh, which we got the Spanish out of Cuba. Uh, that, that was the big thing. The Spanish-American War, Cuba, Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Riders. But the Philippines War, which was a long, bloody war, which was in many ways like the Vietnam War, a war full of massacres, which finally we subdued the Filipinos and took it over. But a look into how wars start might have led to some interesting conclusions about that war, then might have led to the Gulf of Tonkin. That might have led people to ask more recently, how did we, under Reagan, decide to invade Grenada? What was the incident there? Oh, it was the medical students in trouble. And wherever medical students are in trouble, the U.S. Army goes, you see. Uh, or remember Panama.
these things, it's hard to remember these things because they come and go so fast, you see. Uh, there was another incident there. Somebody insulted somebody, and we can't take that. <laughs> and besides, we want to eliminate the drug trade. If we get rid of Noriega, that will end the drug trade. And in fact, it has worked. Uh, so in the course of it, we bombard a few uh, neighborhoods in Panama City and kill we don't know how many people. But yes, there are important questions to be asked in history. But in order to do that, you have to start with a point of view so that you will ask those questions. The idea of having a point of view is not to have preconceived answers, to be willing to be open for the answer. But the, the important thing about having a point of view is to ask important questions on the grounds that history is important. It's not a game of trivia. It's not a way simply to, to become a professional, to produce another generation of historians who will produce another generation of historians. We all reproduce ourselves as historians while the world passes us by and all sorts of things are going on. Of course, when you, when you approach history that way with a point of view, it's, it's, it can be dangerous to your career. And people always wonder why it is that the textbooks repeat the same stories over and over again, or why history is taught the same way, or why the same set of facts are told over again, or why the same things are omitted over and over again. And the very repetition of those omissions, the very re repetition of those points of view become persuasive in telling you, well, this must be the truth. If seven, eight, ten generations of kids learned that Columbus was nothing but a marvelous adventurer and great navigator, <laughs> a real professional, <laughs> you know. And if everyone, if everybody has been taught the same thing for a hundred years, it must be true. And if you teach it in a different way, if you teach something that's been taught the same way or if you write something that's been taught a certain way and you deviate from that and you start to teach or to write something in a new way, well, that may be just for your career. You may not even consciously think of it that way. You're not consciously selling out. It's just that in a society of, of economic hierarchy, in a society of economic insecurity, in a society where everybody is in some way insecure, middle class, working class, everybody's in a situation where somebody has power over them, power over their jobs, power over their tenure, power over their promotion, power over their salaries. In every such situation, there's always the thought or even the <laughs> unthought but felt need for safety. And safety results in teaching a certain kind of way, writing a certain kind of way, presenting the same set of ideas over and over again. Uh, that's safe. I guess you can put it this way. I never wanted to practice safe history. Uh, you know, uh, you know. You're listening to Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States part one of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn Centenary. 
This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program and the classic Zen books of People's History of the United States and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's Alternative Radio. I guess you can put it this way. I never wanted to practice safe history. Uh, 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 I I remember when the House on American Activities Committee interrogated Daniel Boorstein. Do you remember the House on American Activities Committee? Probably some people here who were interrogated by the House. I, I... and I, I don't want to point them out to you. <laughs> you may remember that it, it had hostile witnesses who refused to talk about their political activities and organizations or to name their friends. And then it had what were called friendly witnesses. One of those friendly witnesses was Daniel Burstein, who, as you know, is a distinguished historian. I guess the word distinguished is a kind of neutral word. Uh, and, and he assured the committee that, that he, whatever radicalism he had ever had, he had left far behind. Oh, he, he told the committee that, that he had proved his opposition to communism in two ways. First, by participating in religious activities at the University of Chicago. And then he said, quote, The second form of my opposition has been to attempt to discover and explain to students in my teaching and in my writing the unique virtues of American democracy. Well, that seems objective. Uh, The unique virtues of American democracy. Now, if he had said, I thought I would explain to my students some of the virtues of American democracy and some of the hypocrisies of American democracy, uh, he wouldn't have been a friendly witness at that point. I suppose that I I came to history with a point of view, I came to the teaching and writing of history with a point of view already because I, I didn't go directly from high school to college to graduate school to teaching because I had a a number of years between high school and college. At the age of 18 I went to work in a shipyard uh, and worked there for three years. Uh, I didn't do it as a sociological experiment. Uh, (laughs) Go around with a tape recorder and talk to my fellow shipyard workers. Uh, How does it feel to work in a shipyard? But I came from the kind of background, the kind of family that, uh, where kids didn't go to college, where at the age of 18 you went to work so you could bring some money home, even if it was very little money home to the family. So I worked in a shipyard for three years, and I have a chapter in my, uh, this memoir, which is called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Uh, I have a chapter in it called Growing Up Class Conscious, and I suppose I I grew up class conscious, that as I grew up aware that that 
that most people in society worked on the kind of job I worked on. That is not in a shipyard, maybe. It didn't matter what they worked at, but they worked at a job that they weren't crazy about, but that, that they had to work at. And they might be blue-collar workers, and they might be white-collar workers, or they might be uh, steel workers, or they might be advertising copywriters, but they still were mostly working at jobs with, uh, which alienated them from the process of work and alienated from the, from the product of their work. And so I was aware that this kind of work existed, and I was aware that there seemed to be some people in society who didn't do that kind of work. And I very early on became aware that there was no particular relationship between the, how hard you worked and what were the rewards that you got as a result of this work. I never believed uh, from, and I don't know when this, this started, but it's very young, uh, I was no, no longer susceptible to that which you hear a lot around you, which I remember some of my students at Boston University would express in something that is a, a recurring theme in American society, and that is if you, if you work hard enough, you will, as they say, make it. You will become prosperous and successful if you work hard. If you haven't become prosperous and successful, it must mean you haven't worked very hard. And I saw my father work very hard all his life and have very little to show for it. So my mother worked very hard and lots of people like them. And then I saw people in society who were successful and who were prosperous and I couldn't figure out what they did. <laughs> Either they didn't seem to be working very hard or they were working very hard at producing terrible things. And they were very well paid for it. So yes, I was class conscious at an early age. And the word class conscious doesn't appear a lot in American society. It's sort of an embarrassing word. Our society is not supposed to be that way. Uh, Brazil, yes. Ecuador, who knows? Saudi Arabia, there, there are, you know, there, there are societies with rich elites and poor masses, but not America, and you hear politicians accusing one another of appealing to class prejudices. And politicians are, are very careful not to be accused of that. I remember during the uh, 1988 election campaign, do you remember Bush and Dukakis? It's uh, hard to remember that, something like But it will be on the next New York Times quiz. <laughs> But at one point, Bush accused Dukakis of arousing class hostility, which really surprised me. You know, I live in Massachusetts. Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts. And the idea that Dukakis would appeal to class hostility somehow didn't ring true to me. <laughs> that he would provoke class conflict? No that he would provoke anything. <laughs> but this avoidance of class is very interesting. Uh, the Boston Globe had a review of a new movie, Germinal. Some of you may recognize it. It was a novel by Emil Zola, a novel about miners and, and, 
and, and The Life of Miners, a very powerful, powerful novel about the struggles of miners in, in their existence. And, and so a movie was made of it, and, and the reviewer didn't like it. And at the end of the review, as at the end of all the reviews in the newspaper, and I don't know if they have that here in Portland, but you know, they give the rating, you know, G, PG-13, R. And next to that designation, they, especially if it's R, they usually say why they gave it the R designation. And usually, if it's R, they will say nudity, uh, or partial nudity, or frontal nudity, or side nudity. <laughs> or violence, scenes of violence, or profanity. And so, after the review of Germinal, it was designated R. And then it gave the explanation. And here was the explanation. This is not a paraphrase. Depiction of intense suffering and class conflict. <laughs> I didn't believe it, but, uh, but I'm a naive person. I, 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 I see things in the newspapers, or I hear things from the mouths of politicians, and then I, I say, I don't believe it, <laughs> which is ridiculous, because that's all you should believe. I mean, what else is there to believe? <laughs> you know, if I heard a politician say, you know, the history of the United States is a history of class struggle, well, then I wouldn't believe it. Uh, but in fact, this is a class society, and, and you could start a history of the United States with that sentence, the history of the United States is a history of class struggle. And it would be absolutely accurate. But can you imagine somebody writing, a, let's say, a textbook on American history for our very vulnerable students and starting off talking about our history being a history of class struggle? Can you imagine any major publisher publishing a book like that with that first sentence? Would it take very long for the publisher to go through that manuscript before rejecting it? And yet, it is an absolutely true statement. From the very beginning on the North American continent, uh, from the, those first centuries of what is called the colonial period, the period before the American Revolution, we were a class society. We didn't all come here as pilgrims. I remember going to school, my, uh, my impression was that those people who came from England all dressed in the same simple way. It was a very egalitarian society and they signed the Mayflower Compact, which proved it. But no, in fact, there are people who came here as black slaves, and there are other people who came here as indentured servants. Large numbers of women came as, you might say, uh, servants and sex slaves to serve the men who were already here, the labor force that had to be satisfied in some way. Others came here with enormous grants of land given by the king or given by parliament. And so from the beginning, they were very rich and, and very poor. And that pattern continued all through American history. 
And the poor resisted and rebelled, and there were slave rebellions, and there were servants' rebellions, and, and the poor uh, of the colonies rioted, the, the flour riot, the bread riot. Uh, the people uh, attack the warehouses where the flour is stored. Uh, flour is not being made available to them because they can't afford the prices that are being charged for the flour. And they storm and they, and they open up the, the warehouse and they take the flour so they can make bread and feed their families. Riots against impressment, riots because they're being impressed to fight the wars of the British uh, in the uh, 18th, late 17th and 18th centuries. This all before the American Revolution. Tenants' insurrections against landlords, crowds marching onto jails and freeing the prisoners who've been put in prison because of failure to pay their debts. And then the American Revolution comes along, and one of its functions is to suppress class conflict as wars are very often fought with that purpose. Well, when I say purpose, it suggests a, a, a more deliberate conspiracy than I mean. But let's put it this way, that one of the consequences of wars very often, and one of the accompaniments of wars, is very often the creation of a country united against a common enemy, and therefore a country which the leaders of the country hope will put aside the internal conflicts, the class conflicts, the feeling of the poor against the rich, put that aside to face the, the common enemy in the case of the American Revolution. England didn't wholly succeed because even during the American Revolution there were rebellions, soldiers, class conflict in the army. I mean, there's no class division more sharp and more humiliating than class divisions in the military and where privates were not being paid and officers were being paid very lavishly. And so they mutinied, and they marched on the Continental Congress in Philadelphia and threatened it. And a number of them had to be taken out by George Washington and, and their fellow soldiers ordered to shoot them uh, as, a, as a lesson to the rest. And when the revolution was over, the class conflict continued. And that, in, in, to a great degree, led to the creation of the Constitution, because the Constitution was an attempt to, to create a nation uh, in which internal conflict would be controlled. And those of you who have read the Federalist Papers, or at least read Federalist Paper Number 10, know that this was the argument that James Madison presented in arguing for people to ratify the Constitution, you know, when the Constitution was presented in the various states for ratification. And the argument was, you know, that there's a natural tendency for conflict. You didn't use the word class, you used the word faction. And then the basis of this conflict between factions is the division of property. Some people have property and other people don't have property. And so we want to create a, a large republic with, uh, which will be able to control this conflict. Wasn't worried about a minority faction, as he put it. He was worried about a majority faction, which meant most of the poor people. And the way to control that is by having a big country, all 13 states together, 
And in that way, it'll be very hard for, and they were very blunt about this in the Federalist Papers, it'll be very hard to have a, a rebellion that starts in one part of the country spread very quickly to the rest of the country. It'll be contained in time before it spreads. And, uh, and representation, having a representative government will be a good thing. For those of you who are intoxicated with the glories of representative government, you should keep in mind that representative government, oh, while it's an improvement on monarchy, is also a way, as Madison put it, and Hamilton put it at another point, the, uh, the, the Federalist Papers on the Constitution were a bipartisan effort, an early indication of how the supposedly contending groups uh, who run American society, the Democrats and the Republicans and the Whigs and the Democrats and the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, they, they really are a part of the same elite group with some differences. And Madison and Hamilton agreed on this, that the idea, although Hamilton was, was less, uh, actually he preferred a monarchy, but, but he's willing to go along with representative government because, as Madison explained, if, if you have representatives, then if, any, if there, there is anger that arises in any part of the population, it, that anger will be filtered through the representative body. And by the time it gets through the representative body, it will have been calmed down and subdued somewhat. And as Madison put it, the, the reason for this, the reason for having this, this, this kind of government and this kind of constitution is to guard against things like a rage for paper money, as he put it, because the, the, the debtors, the people who owed money at that time, wanted the state governments to issue uh, paper money, inflation in other words. They've scared us with the word inflation, but very often people in debt have wanted inflation so they can pay off their debts more easily. And the farmers wanted paper money, wanted inflation. A rage for paper money, Madison said, uh, is something we want to guard against, or as he put it, uh, an equal division of property or any other wicked object. So they knew what they were doing, those founding fathers. Yes, they deserve our <laughs> admiration. <laughs> As you know, the founding fathers were not a multicultural group. Uh, no women, no Native Americans, no blacks, and virtually no poor people. It was a 55, 53 maybe, 53 and a half rich white men who, uh, as Charles Beard put it rightly, despite all, uh, all the uh, criticism he took for saying this, uh, reflected the interests of the propertied classes. A strong central government was set up to protect the interests of the slave owners and the interests of the merchants and the interests of the bondholders. A country that will be, it would be able to move westward and, and protect the people who moved westward, who expanded into Indian lands, a government that would be able to send an army out into the Indian lands and get rid of the Indians and clear the way for white people to take over that land. Next time you hear somebody say, we mustn't have big government, this country was founded on the idea of big government. You were just listening to Howard Zinn, a People's History of the United States, part one of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn Centenary. He spoke at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Howard Zinn, Professor Emeritus at Boston University, was perhaps this country's premier radical historian. 
a principled opponent of imperialism and militarism, he was an advocate of nonviolent civil disobedience. He's the author of A People's History of the United States and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Howard Zinn passed away in 2010. His work continues to inform and inspire. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a series of programs featuring Howard Zinn. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, Parts 1 and 2, and for his classic books, A People's History of the United States, and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, that's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with a special composition, a remix by Joel Tarman, performed by the Kronos Quartet on the occasion of the Zinn Centenary. government are not given to self-reflection or to self-criticism. No, if you criticize the United States government, you're met with the exhortation, well, why don't you go somewhere else? (laughs) Well, Well, sometimes they say, why don't you go back to where you came from, you know, which might be Brooklyn. Well, this, this notion of uh, superiority and exceptionalism starts early. Well, here in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, the colony had just begun, and, and Governor uh, Winthrop uh, talked about uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, as uh, a city on a hill. I think Reagan embellished it a little and talked about a golden city on a hill. Well, the idea of a city on a hill, you've probably heard that expression a number of times, the idea of a city on a hill uh, is, a, is a nice one because it suggests a, a model. It suggests setting an example. I mean, that is a wonderful thing to be. But it doesn't stop there with just being a city on a hill. After uh, Governor Winthrop utters these words, 
about being a city on a hill. Just a few years later, the people in the city on a hill move out to massacre the Peacock Indians. between what the government does and what God approves of. That process of not being just a city on a hill, but of moving out, of expanding, that's a, a persistent fact of American history, going all the way back to those first settlers and coming down to the present day. become persuaded that you don't have any power, you know? I mean, this is one of the great obstacles to people acting, the sense of futility. Oh, they have it all. They're in charge, you know? Uh, what can we do? Who are we? What do we have? And it's important to understand uh, that's where history comes in handy, too, because you find that these uh, concentrations of power at certain points, they fall apart. Very suddenly, surprisingly, and you find that they're ultimately they're very fragile. And you find that governments that have said, oh, we will never do this, end up doing it. We will never cut and run. They said this in Vietnam. We cut and ran in Vietnam. Uh, in the South, well, you know, George Wallace, the racist governor of Alabama said, segregation now. Segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, enormous applause. Two years later, blacks in Alabama had in the meantime begun to vote, and Wallace was going around trying to get black people to vote for him, you see. 
in these very apparently invincible constellations of power at the top fall is that ultimately they depend on the obedience of everybody in the population. When people withdraw their obedience, they have no power. You know? So, yeah, they depend on our obedience when we withdraw it, their power disappears. Important to know that. Important to know that every little thing we do helps. We, can't, we don't all have to do heroic things. All we have to do is little things. And at certain points in history, many little things come together and change takes place. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You're listening to Next Level Radio only on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary or online around the world at CJSW.com.
That was Quazon by Newsate. You are currently listening to.